On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, but you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome back. It's great to have your company on Monday's Experts. This is Sky Sports Radio. Horse racing stewards ensure that all regulations and guidelines within the industry are adhered to. My guest today on Monday's Experts is Chief Racing New South Wales Steward Mark Van Gestel. Mark has occupied the position since 2016 and has dedicated 30 years to racing in New South Wales as part of the stewards panel. During the COVID pandemic, it was Van Gestel along with his stewards team who worked tirely, tirelessly to ensure the safe continuation of the industry. Today we talked to Mark about that, his life in racing, what's ahead and plenty more. Hi Mark. Morning Luke, how are you? I'm very well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it's certainly in my view that all of us who work in this industry in horse racing, we all share a passion for the industry. What? Where did your passion in horse racing come from Mark? Oh, look, mine came from my, my family, Luke. Um, my father, as most people know, is a, a horse trainer out in the Hawkesbury, and um, I guess my youth was, um, you know, essentially going to race meetings, floating horses, usually to uh, the country or provincial race meetings, um, you know, long drives, and, um, you know, when I was old enough to be, you know, start riding a bit of work and strapping horses and, um, you know, essentially got involved in the industry, you know, from a very young age. Absolutely. And, and how did you enjoy that side of the industry, Mark? I, I share a unique comparison that my father was a trainer and I rode a little bit of track work, etc. myself, and I can certainly relate to those long car trips to country racing. Uh, how was that for you? Oh, look, I loved it. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a, a great upbringing, you know, to be able to go to race meetings and, um, you know, enjoy the thrill of, of the sport. And, you know, we, um, my father never had a big team, but... Um, you know, regularly, we you know once or twice a month we head off to a race meeting, and uh, you know when, when I was old enough to uh, start strapping horses and as I say riding a bit of work, um, you know that was a that was a, a great thrill. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't very good at riding track work, and but, um, so I decided to uh, do something different where you know I could uh, contribute on the other side of the fence. Absolutely, and we'll look forward to chatting about that more. But what are, what are some of the pictures in your mind of of growing up, being around horses, going to those? country race meetings what are some of the memories that you can see in your mind from those days oh look a lot of people that you know you, you met along the way people that i still associate with now um you know out in the, in the hawkesbury region um you know being a track work in the morning you know, talking to those people um you know traveling to to race meetings and uh, um you know and the engagement of the of um you know people in the sport uh, as you said earlier one thing that Everybody that, that essentially is associated with this industry has a, a passion for the sport and you know the love of the horse and uh, you know it's just the I guess the, the characters that are that are associated with it and you know and the horses themselves, Luke. I mean that's just something that you know you, you never get away from and, and looking at the at horse flesh and you know understanding you know how they work and you know looking at the uniqueness of each individual horse. It's um it's something that you know you you take with you for the rest of your life. You're you're so right, and they've all got a unique personality, don't they? They do, yeah. I, I can remember, um, you know, my, my father has had many horses over the years, and you know, some are as uh, as quiet as the, the uh, you know a cow that we had on the farm, and, and others, you know, <laughs> you, you had to be very careful of. And uh, you know, th- it doesn't mean that they couldn't run if they were if they were sort of a docile sort of animal. It's just they're all very unique, and um, you know, it, it certainly was something that um, you know taught you to always um, respect the horse and. Uh, you know, if you didn't know it, to um, ensure that, uh, you know, you're always careful around them. 
How has that helped you in your career path to, to being a steward, having that understanding? And I'm sure your, your father would have taught you a lot about the animal in those early days. Yeah, tremendously. I mean, you know, to have the, the, the basic skills of just being able to handle horses and, yeah. you know, when you when you work on, on this side of the fence, um, you know, you, you still do need to have that understanding of, of how the horse works, you know, the anatomy of the horse. Um, you know, we work with vets here on, on a daily basis, um, you know, and having an understanding as to what, uh, you know, what makes the horse tick. And uh, so yeah, that was certainly an important grounding for me and, and making sure that, you know, even learning you know, how to train a horse, um, you know, what sort of uh, work horses are doing, you know, what to feed them. All those things are you know, important when you become a steward so that, uh, you know, you, you know essentially the basics of, of what you're uh, talking and, and what you're administering. Did you ever consider a training path? No, I haven't. Um, seemed like too much hard work for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The practical side of things. Um, you know, we, I grew up in a, on a dairy farm as well, and uh, you know, we used to milk a hundred head of cows. Um, you know, on a daily basis, as well as dad going to the, the track in the morning and, and working a couple of horses. So, I mean, um, both of those occupations are, are, are not are quite time strenuous, and uh, you know, so I thought that uh, getting into the admin side was a, a better option for me. Absolutely, I understand. And and when was that point of your life? When did you start thinking about an administrative role and uh, stewarding role? Oh, look, it was when I when I finished year 12, um, I, I essentially didn't know what I was going to do um, with my life. I, you know, I enrolled in a couple of university courses and I did a, a week or two of land economy. Um, and uh, at the same time, I had a few applications uh, with different roles and I applied for the job, a job with the uh, Australian Jockey Club, which it was at the time, working in the racing office there, you know, processing nominations and acceptances and putting jockeys on horses, you know, in the days when there was no computerised systems. And um, yeah, that's essentially where I started. I was fortunate enough to, to get a, a role working, um, you know, with the Australian Jockey Club and, and that, you know, essentially set me on my way. What sort of a student were you at school? I always had uh, too many horses running around my head. I just fell over the line, Mark, to finish year 12. How, how did you go in your schooling days? I was probably a short half head behind you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, school, you know, I enjoyed school. It was a good good time in my life and you know, my, my marks weren't bad. But, yep. and, you know, look, if um, probably this role didn't come along at that time, you know, university would have been the way that I headed. But, um, you know, racing was, you know, in my blood at that point in time and to, you know, be offered a role with the um, prestigious Australian Jockey Club at the time, um, you know, I thought that was the, my best career path at that point. Absolutely. It's a wonderful opportunity that, that they provided you, and I'm sure things have come a long way. You mentioned pre-computers. What was it like in the offices back in those days working for the ATC? Well, back in those days, it was telephone calls, um, you know, trainers ringing up, uh, you know, lodging nominations, uh, trainers walking into the office, you know, I remember, um, you know, going back at that point in time, you know, some of the leading trainers, you know, would walk into the office and, um, you know, essentially handwrite the nominations and then, you know, it was up to the, the clerks in the office then to put those nominations together and you know, it was a day of facsimiles where, you know, you would communicate by facsimile to uh, different parts of, uh, of the racing industry and, you know, the nominations uh, for, for a race were you know, not, not readily available. They were, you know, they were facts of various race clubs and, you know, trainers would, you know, essentially, um, you know, saw the nominations, you know, through, through those mediums. And what was it like dealing with some of those bigger name trainers? Uh, you're obviously a young person starting out in the industry. Was, was there ever a, were you always comfortable in that environment, talking to those people and communicating with those? Because it's an important skill you've got to have, isn't it? 
Yeah, oh, look, I'm sure I was pretty. I was probably starstruck at the time. Being, you know, your trainers are like, you know, your Bart Cummings and Tommy Smiths, and later on, your, you know, your Gay Waterhouses and, and Co. And essentially, a lot of the, you know, the Ramwick trainers were there at the time. A lot of them have sort of moved on nowadays. But um, look, I, at the time, it was just, you know, it was just something that, um, you know, was, I guess for me, dreams were made of. You know, working in an environment where you had the caliber of those uh, those trainers there, of and course. also, you know, the jockeys that you were dealing with as well at the time. It. Uh, it was just a you know an outstanding opportunity. Who were some of the interesting characters in those days? What was what was Tommy Smith like? Look, I never had too much to do with him, other than you know the odd phone call. You talk yep. to them on the telephone. He'd have a, he'd have a lot of um, you know office staff assisting him as well. But from time to time, he'd walk into the office and you'd, you'd you know have uh, a dealing with him. And uh, matter of fact, straight to the point, um, you know, charismatic, um, you know, like like his daughter Gaze as, as well, and. Uh, you know, but um, they were they were just another, I guess, another person within the industry. That um, it's one thing about this industry, you know, whether you are, you know, Tommy Waterhouse or um, Bart Cummings or you know Chris Waller these days. I think, you know, whether you're whether you're the people of those caliber or whether you're a, you know an office clerk, we, you know, we all sort of work together and um, you know for the for the, the greater good of the industry. And I, I don't think there's any personality that I've ever met along the way that's um, you know bigger than the other. Yeah, that's very well said. We all play our roles, don't we? So when did being a steward come on the radar? When did you decide that that was something you were really interested in? Yeah, look, it was John Trek was the chief steward at the time, and I'd, I'd spent about uh, twelve months or so working in the racing department. And um, you know, I had a conversation with John, and uh, you know, he suggested that I apply for um, one of the traineeships that they had, or they were called cadetships at the time, where. You know, he suggested that um, it would be a good career path for me, and you know, it was um, it was certainly something that I, I was interested in doing and you know, progressing a career in, in the industry. And um, that was really the, the first, um, you know, the first point um, you know, in, in the sort of early nineties that um, you know I was appointed as a, as a cadet steward under John. And as a cadet, uh, did you do some regional travel uh, and see different parts of New South Wales at the time? Yeah, I did. I saw, you know, we, we, the cadetship went for a couple of years, and um, you know, during that that time, you you learn from the stewards, the senior stewards that are working there on on the metropolitan panel. And you know, I'd, I was fortunate to uh, you know to work under John um, at that point in time. But also, there was other stewards there that um, you know probably showing my age a bit now. But you know, people like Larry Morrison and Tom Calvin, Pat Hartman, probably names that not many people know of. But they were they were you know fantastic stewards. They were level headed. Um, and you know, taught me you know, really well in, in terms of you know what's required of a steward, and you know, also about you know, presence and and those sorts of things. So, but yeah, look, going back to your question, you know, I did do a bit of regional uh, travel. Um, I spent four years in in Wagga, um, you know, working under uh, the chairman there, a person called Michael Hickey, who was also a great mentor, and um, you know, he he would certainly you know taught me a lot about common sense and you know, how to make decisions under pressure um, and not to brush those decisions and you know that's the, the purpose of you know having our stewards based in those regional centres is where you get the opportunity to be exposed to situations you know that um, might otherwise be um, somewhat confronting but it gives you the opportunity to deal with them in a, in a less high pressure environment. And was that the best piece of advice you were given just to stay measured and think things through in those early days or was there something else that has stuck with you? No I think that's that's it Luke it's um you know, I, I like to pride myself on being considered when making decisions. I don't, I don't get flustered or rushed. And um, you know, it's making decisions as a steward. Sometimes you don't have a lot of time to do that, so it's important to be considered and to you know think about um, the decision that you're making and make sure that you're, you're making the correct one. So 
it's um, you know, it's a, it's a, it certainly was a, a good piece of advice is just to consider um, you know what's before you and you know don't be rushed into making a decision that's not correct and uh, I think that's probably the best piece of advice I had whilst I was you know working out in country New South Wales but also I mean as as you mentioned before there's a, a lot of trainers that have been training there for a long period of time and to have a, mm-hmm. a young person you know move out to a region and, and start enforcing the rules with trainers that might have been training for 50 years so that takes a certain skill as well to be able to you know, earn their respect. Um, and, yeah, that was one of the things that I, I really um, endeavoured to do when I was out there is to be respectful but also to earn their respect when I was you know, working as a, as a younger person. And how do you do that? How, how do you um, insert yourself in that environment and then um, learn, I guess, the craft of, of doing all of that, Mark? Well, yeah, it's about having knowledge, I guess. It, you know, one thing that I always you know, tried to do is to make sure that I... I continue to self-educate myself on the rules, um, to self-educate myself on the industry, and to, you know, I guess having that grounding from working, you know, with my father that, um, you know, I knew how a racing stable ticked along. Yeah. And that gave me, you know, I guess um, some credit in terms of, you know, the operations of, the, of those stables. But, you know, you still need to be respectful of those people that have you know, been working in the industry for a long time. And, um, you know, I think by just, um, you know, understanding the system and, and you know, not... Um, not trying to be in a situation where you're going to, you know, force rules upon people without giving proper explanations and, and reasons as to why you're making certain decisions. We're chatting to Mark Van Gestel this morning on Monday's Experts. Mark, in those early days as a cadet, were, were there ever moments where you thought, oh, gee, maybe this isn't for me? Um, did you ever have any of those thoughts or you were enjoying the process all the way? Oh, look, I, I, I certainly enjoyed the, the role. Um, you know, it, I guess... Um, Probably early on, you know, I didn't know whether the role was for me, um, you know, when I first started working at the Australian Jockey Club. But once I was, you know, developed and uh, started to learn the, the, the role of a steward, I, you know, I knew that was the career for me. It, um, it was something, you know, where I was going to race meetings probably, you know, in regional New South Wales two or three times a week, um, you know, and then essentially getting paid to do something that I love to do is to go to, go to the races. And, um, yeah. yeah, for me having, you know, an interest, a great interest in the sport, um, it didn't a lot of the time seems like, seem like work to me. I mean, there's the odd time where, you know, there's challenges and pressures put upon you where, you know, you, um, you, you can, you, you consider as to, you know, whether you've made the right decision or not. But, um, overall, I guess like any job, this you know, has its challenges and, um, but to be able to go to the sports and and to administer the the um, the rules, it's something that uh, you know I found very rewarding. We're pretty lucky, aren't we, in the in this game to to be able to, as you put it, go to the races for a living. We're pretty blessed. We are, and I mean that's that's just that's just um, you know one of the real benefits of working within this industry. I mean, not just being a steward, but whether you're a race caller or whether you're an administrator or a strapper, stable and jockey, um, you know, to be able to actually go to you know, work in a, in a sporting environment as we as we do. I think yeah. you know we we uh, you know, very blessed to be able to do that, and you know it's it's just such a, a great sport um, to be involved in, and um, to be able to you know, to do that on a, on a weekly basis is um, you know I pinch myself most days. So, how long was it during uh, in your, into your cadetship before you made the move back to Sydney? Yeah, so I spent about four years in Wagga. So it was in about 1996 um, that I, I moved back to Sydney, or maybe maybe just a fraction later, 1998 that I moved back to Sydney. Um, and then that was at the time when Ray Murray had had um, recently um, moved down from Queensland. John had re- retired, and uh, 
in fact, uh, well, not retired, moved to Hong Kong, and uh, Ray had taken over um, the role as uh, chairman of stewards in Sydney. And um, you know, that was probably really where um, you know my knowledge and 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 I guess uh, capabilities improved. You know, working under under Ray um, on the Metropolitan Panel. Um, you know, back in back in I guess um, the big smoke. Mm, absolutely, it was two thousand and six uh, when you eventually took over the top job from Ray Murray, who retired. You became the chief steward. Here in New South Wales, how was that process? 2016, it was. Um, oh, yeah, so about about six years ago, and so yeah, Ray, as I said to you, Ray, have been a great mentor to me, and you know, essentially taught me probably most of what I've uh, I, I hold um, you know in my repertoire today. So it, it was a process where you know Ray had obviously um, reached a point in his career where he, he felt it was time to move on and uh, explore other opportunities, and he, you know, he still does a bit of work today as I understand it with other other jurisdictions but it was an opportunity you know after being the deputy chairman for about 10 years and you know essentially you know chairing most midweek race meetings in the metropolitan area and the occasional Saturday race meeting and filling in as chairman when, when Ray was away on leave and you know it just was a natural progression for me Luke to to move into this role and I was fortunate, you know, to have the, you know, the tremendous backing of the chief executive here, Peter Valandis, and uh, who, you know, essentially offered me the role as as, um, as Ray had, um, you know, elected to move on. Absolutely, and and working with Ray, he he did so much for the industry, and he was very very well respected. That would have been a uh, an enjoyable work experience, no doubt as well, working alongside him for all those years. Yeah, I mean, Ray, Ray was just a you know an outstanding steward, and. Um, you know, he's well known for a lot of his race day work, Ray, um, you know, where he was obviously the face of um, the enforcement of the rules and, and, you know, chairing of race meetings. But, I mean, his skills administratively um, were, you know, second to none in my view. Um, he, you know, the, his um, advocacy, you know, at appeals and, um, you know, putting uh, putting cases before appeals panels um, was just, a, you know, something that um, I tried to take in every time that Ray was there, you know, advocating appeals. And it's, um, you know, it's a skill that uh, is difficult to develop. And, you know, quite often the stewards, you know, when we you know, make a decision under the rules, to, whether it's to suspend or fine or disqualify a person, and then they get tested before appeal panels. And, and quite often as stewards, you know, we're there, um, advocating appeals with you know barristers of you know high profile and you know mm. it's something that you know as a chairman of stewards you need to um, you know be, un- be be across to ensure that you know you present the best case as well. I oh, no doubt that that's a whole other side to it, isn't it? And and one part of your job too is is protests, which also divide opinion in racing, and all punters want to have an opinion, and it, it's great theatre for the industry. Take us inside the stewards' room during a protest. How how that process works. Well, as most people know, that there's a hearing that's conducted, and and um, jockeys and and trainers and and owners um, get the opportunity to make any um, submissions in relation to the video, and then um, at that point in time, the stewards make a determination and, and deliberate as to whether they believe the protest should be dismissed or upheld. And you know, look, it's not always uni- uniform agreement between stewards, and that's why we have a panel of stewards sitting there. Um, mm. It's always a minimum of three stewards, sometimes more in the metropolitan area, where you know each person gets the opportunity um, to have an, have a um, vote in terms of whether they think it should be upheld or dismissed. And look, sometimes um, you know you're talking about small margins and slight interference, and you've got to make a 
a subjective um, decision as to whether you think um, the horse protesting against would have finished in, in front of the, the other horse. And you know, it's not um, it's not something that's just exact science. It's a it's an opinion that um, you you form as to whether you know that horse would have gone past it or whether it would have would have beaten it. And um, you know, from time to time, there's, there's differing opinions, and and there yeah, can be some robust um, decision making uh, processes that that go with that. But you know, I think it's a it's a system that's stood the test of time, and I think you know, usually um, most of the time that um, you know the decisions that we we make are, are the correct ones. No doubt about it, and that's what makes our industry opinions. That's what forms markets. Uh, for races, and uh, everyone has one. Are there any that stand out, Mark? Was there ever any that got pretty heated or, or stand out in your mind? Not so much heated. I think probably the uh, the, the most uh, the most um, interesting one was um, was the takeover target honour and war protest um, during 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 uh, EI yes. when we only had a select number of horses that were able to compete, and um, you know, takeover target was certainly the, the people's champion um, at the time, and uh, we. We, myself and uh, Ray were two of the stewards that um, determined, and it was a unanimous vote, but it was what took place afterwards when we, we left the stewards' room and um, we were berated by a number of punters that were um, over the fence or supporters of Takeover Target, and that's probably the one that stands in my mind where you know, there was certainly a lot of uh, vocal people there um, you know, detailing their uh, displeasure to the decision that we'd made. And do you think that had uh, something to do with the emotion around the horse? Because like you said, he was so loved by punters in the industry. I'm sure that maybe the financial investment of those punters might have had something to do with it as well, but he was a very popular horse. Oh, he was, he was a people's champion. And, yeah. and I guess that, that just probably um, highlights the fact that you know, when you're making these decisions, you can't let those sorts of things of get course. in the road of, of making the correct decision. And you know, people often say to me, you know, it's an Everest or it's a uh, Sydney Cup or or it's a, um, you know, Golden Eagle. You know, when you make these decisions, you know, you, you you must have that in the back of your mind. And the answer to that is no, is that you, you always just ensure that you apply the same principles, whether it's a, a maiden at Gosford or, or whether it's, you know, the Everest. you just got to apply those same principles that you've learned and take out the emotion of, you know, who the horse is and, and what the consequences are. And, I remember, um, you know, a few years ago there was a, a minor protest in the, you know, the Golden Slipper. We were talking, um, you know, fourth and fourth and uh, third, and uh, you know, you you obviously afterwards realise the ramifications of those decisions, but you you must apply the same principles on on each occasion. Absolutely, you, you've explained it very well, and I think that's the difference between a steward doing their job and enforcing the rules of racing, and and a punter who's got an emotional or financial uh, investment in a result. Uh, another extraordinary day in your career was the 2017 Sydney Cup, uh, where we had the no race. Talk us through that day. This was, um, as I said, quite extraordinary, and we know the race was rerun a, a week later. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I, I... Philip Dingle was my deputy at the time. We were watching the race up in the grandstand, and we always uh, at Ramwick watched the races um, next to the race caller. And Darren Kendell was was calling the race on, on this occasion. And I, you know, recall that um, when our Moon Quiz it, it um, sustained an injury, and both James Doyle and, and Blake Shin fell to the ground. And essentially, our Moon Quiz was positioned about three horses away from the rail, about fifty metres or so after the winning post, and. You know, got to a point where the horses entered the back straight and it was evident that um, the horse wasn't going to be able to be moved because of its injury, um, that we had to make a decision as to whether to continue on or not. And I guess that's where 
what I was talking about earlier about your training, about not making a decision that's rushed, but you know, considering it, but bearing in mind you've got less than a minute or so to, to make the decision when the horses were, you know, entering the uh, the back straight. And, um, and we made the decision when the horses got to about the 1,200 metres that the, the race would have to be abandoned. And, um, you know, we, we had the barrier staff position there at about the uh, 900 metre mark and, you know, a message was given to them to, you know, through the uh, clerks of the course to, you know, pull the horses up and to tell them to, to um, abandon the race. But it was unfortunate that probably six or seven of the jockeys misheard mis, uh, what was being said and continued on. And, you know, we're fortunate that... Um, and there was no accident uh, that occurred after the winning post. But, look, it was a difficult decision to make. You know, it was a high-profile Group 1 race yeah. where we had, you know, horses uh, from the international competing. Um, but one thing that I was always taught is, is safety is paramount and safety always comes first. And, um, you know, between myself and uh, Philip, we made that decision to, you know, to abandon the race. And, you know, having time now to reflect on it, it would be a decision that I'd make every day of the week, given the circumstances, um, you know, that were presented. That, you know, it's about you know looking after the safety of of our participants and also the safety of the horses. Absolutely, that that's the most important thing. That's what we all want at the end of the day is everyone to compete safely, uh, horse and rider. And we know polarisation. Uh, a week later. He won the race again in italics, so it was a it was an extraordinary situation. Have you experienced anything like that since or prior? No, not not in terms of having to you know to to call races off. Um, I mean, we have you know good structures in place, and and one thing that um, came from that incident, Luke, was that you know you you learn from those those issues as well, and we have you know good systems in place now where you know the horse um, does sustain an unfortunate injury, we're able to move that horse relatively quickly. Um, stabilise it. Um, you know, we have uh, better systems in place now to, you know, to call a race off if that's mm-hmm. necessary. So, I mean, from, from every um, incident such as that, you do get those positives coming forward. And, you know, to this day, we still have those you know, structures in place given what, what occurred back in 2017. In 2019, we know uh, a thing called COVID appeared on the scene and the horse racing industry, like many industries, um, faced challenges during the pandemic. But we were so fortunate to race right through the pandemic. And, Mark, you and your team, you worked tirelessly to ensure the safe continuation of our industry. Tell me what a typical daily routine during peak COVID was like for yourself and your team. What sort of hours were you working in those days? Um, yeah, long hours. It, um, you know, <clears throat> as you said, it was a team effort um, from our trainee stewards up to myself, um, you know, chief executive here, Peter Valandis, our executive staff. You know, there was essentially daily meetings where we uh, we were mapping you know, where COVID was um, spreading amongst the, the different districts. And, you know, we were fortunate um, that at, at most most times we were able to continue to, to run race meetings, you know, in areas where, you know, COVID hadn't locked down particular um, jurisdictions. And so, for instance, you know, we, we um, at Warwick Farm were able to continue training there. It's our biggest, you know, one of our biggest training centres. We're able to continue training there, although, the, you know, the area was in a lockdown. And, you know, we implemented, um, I think we were one of the first, not just sports, but uh, one of the first organisations or businesses to introduce rat testing where we got, um, you know, stable hands, um, trainers, track riders that, you know, they'd all be required to give, um, you know, rat tests in the mornings before giving commencing work. And, yeah, that meant doing hundreds and hundreds of those each day. Mm. And, you know, there was occasions where you had, you know, the odd person turning up that uh, ultimately went positive and, 
you know, then they had to be be um, sent away to isolate and to get PCR tests. And, you know, it, it was a, a difficult period of time. But, you know, as the industry has always done and, you know, in circumstances where we have, you know, the ATC now racing at four tracks and, you know, the provincial regions also, um, you know, being much more aligned to, you know, to race in New South Wales, we're able to transfer a lot of race meetings that otherwise wouldn't have been conducted, like, you know, Kembla, Grange, all the brunt of the Rosehill racing meetings. You know, we ran a, we ran a, a carnival, a few carnival meetings down at Kembla Grange, um, you know, and, and the track, you know, played it superbly. And, and it was just one of those examples of the industry coming together and, um, you know, being able to continue on um, racing, you know, despite having, you know, all those challenges in front of us. It was quite, uh, there's no rule book, is there, for for a pandemic? I mean, you, you're thinking on your feet and me personally, I'm just so grateful for racing New South Wales, Peter, yourself, everyone behind the scenes who had a part in those quick decisions early days because uh, we hadn't been there before, had we? No, we hadn't. And, you know, we were very fortunate also that, you know, Peter... Um, had good connections within government, and we were able to demonstrate to government how we were we were dealing with um, you know the uh, the pandemic. And if you know if if a person tested positive on on a rat test, you know we we had all the measures in place to how they were to isolate and what they were to um, to do, and that really you know gave the government confidence to allow us to um, to continue to race and. It needs to be remembered that you know racing is one of the biggest employers um, you know within within this state, and you know it had a significant impact on the economy. You know if we couldn't continue to race, so you know stable ends, track riders, jockeys, trainers, stewards, race callers would all have been you know without work, and you know would have would have also you know been um, in a situation where they'd be looking to you know obtain benefits from the government as well. So. You know, it was an important economic um, stimulus as well to keep keep racing operating. Absolutely. Uh, you've announced recently that you'll take the chief stewarding role at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Tell us about the new role and the decision behind it. Well, the decision behind it, you know, as you've said earlier, I've been working in this industry for you know, 30 years in New South Wales and, um, you know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time um, working within within this state. Um, it just came as an opportunity to, you know, work in, a, in another jurisdiction, a, a jurisdiction that has a significant focus on international racing. Um, you know, not just work, not just um, localised racing in Hong Kong, but has a good big focus on that. And you know, Hong Kong, you know, is, is a, an outstanding racing jurisdiction where you know most of our high-profile or successful participants have, have um, either ridden there or trained there at some point in time. Or, and to me, it just seemed like a, a natural progression. Um, you know, when when the jockey club uh, came and offered me the the role, and um, for me, it, it's it's you know a next stage in my career. It's giving me some new challenges to to deal with, and um, it's something that I'm you know, excited to embrace. Absolutely, and all the best with the new position. Um, am I right in saying that John Shrek, one of your early mentors, he was the chief steward up there as well? Yeah, that I think John was one of the first. Yeah. Um, one of the first um, Australian stewards to go and work there, and it was when Hong Kong was really starting to hit its straps. So, um, yeah, John was first, and you know, people like uh, Jamie Steer, who I work with closely um, on the Sydney Metropolitan Panel, he was chief steward there for some time, and obviously just more recently Kim Kelly. So they're all they're all you know people that I've worked closely with along the way, and uh, as I said before, it just seemed like a, a natural progression given. Um, the success that those um, those persons I've mentioned 
have had in that same jurisdiction. And, you know, we're very much aligned in terms of our stewarding processes here, um, as they are in Hong Kong, you know, given the fact that those persons I've mentioned have, have get, I guess, forged the way in terms of administration of the rules of racing um, in, in that jurisdiction. So, you know, it'll, it'll be, in that regard, quite a seamless transition for me, um, you know, to, to work in an, an area where those people have, uh, have worked before me. Absolutely. I'm sure you take a bit of pride in it too, be, you know, following in the footsteps of those early mentors who helped you in, in your career. Yep, no doubt at all. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, I feel very privileged to be to be offered the position and to be able to work in that role. And, you know, it's uh, it's something that I think most stewards, um, not just around Australia, but most stewards around the world aspire to, um, to you know, work in that jurisdiction, let alone, you know, being employed as their chief steward. So, you know, I take it as a you know a uh, a great privilege to be offered the role, and um, you know, as I said before, it's something that um, you know, I really I'm really looking forward to embracing. We wish you the best, Mark, and congratulations on everything you've achieved here in New South Wales. And uh, I'm sure you'll reflect very fondly on your time here. Is is there a highlight uh, as your time as either chief steward or even in an administrative role here in New South Wales? Oh, look, it's, to me, it's all about the horse, um, Luke, and, you know, I've been so fortunate to see some champions race um, over the years. I mean, it'd be difficult for me, for me to single out one horse because I'd be doing all the rest so much injustice, but you know, it's hard to go away from the you know the, the outstanding moments that, that Winx provided us with over the last uh, few years before her retirement. And, you know, I just, um, as I said before, it's just been such a privilege to be able to work in a, in a, in a jurisdiction where... We're um, you know, seeing such horses of such high caliber mm-hmm. race, um, and you know to be there front and centre, administering those races. But um, to be able to witness those feats, it's just been you know something that I'll, I'll um, cherish forever. We're in pretty good shape here, aren't we? Um, this race called the Everest, uh, the prize money, etc. Uh, even the infrastructure improvements, uh, the the funding from government and Racing New South Wales, the the state's in pretty good shape, isn't it? Oh, look, it's never been better. And, you know, Peter Valandis and the board have just done a remarkable job in revolutionising racing in this state. I'm, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we were probably in a position where we're at the crossroads and as to, you know, where the industry was going to head. And, you know, fortunately, Peter, um, you know, um, introduced the race fields legislation. You know, they faced high court challenges and uh, came through successfully. You know, the point of consumption tax just recently, which has gone through... Mm. You know the financial um, benefits that that has provided to this industry, and you know, and then these you know exciting concepts like the Everest and Golden Eagle, and even you know the Big Dance now coming up. They're all things that have um, really boosted the, the industry, and uh, you know it's never been better. And um, you know it's never it's a, just a, an amazing time for any person who's a participant in the industry at the moment to you know to get the uh, the um, joys of uh, of that success. Mark, pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest today on Monday's Experts, and I wish you all the best. Great. Thanks, Luke.